Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is best known for directing Blood Omen, Legacy of Cain, Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem, and Metal Gear Solid, The Twin Snakes, and is currently working on the upcoming Dead House Sonata. I'd like to welcome Dennis Dyack. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks Thanks for agreeing to do this. I've noticed you, you do a lot of podcasts and interviews, so I'm going to try and switch this up a little bit for you in the beginning. Cool. Because... You used to be a Taekwondo champion, right? You're into... <laughs> correct. Correct. Wow, I, haven't, I don't know if I've ever been asked that before in a podcast. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So you did a lot of contact sports. You were doing wrestling. Was there any yeah. plan at any point that you wanted to go the route of being a wrestler, Canada's next Bret Hart? Or was it always video games? Oh, that's... um. That's very, so that's a great, that's a great story to talk about it. I don't get to talk about this very often. So when I was in high school, um, I knew I wanted to make video games. And um, when I was doing like some computer courses, I got pretty much perfect on them, really excelled in it. But then at the same time, uh, you're right, I was a Canadian Taekwondo champion. Um couple times actually i think i got a gold and a bronze and i, I can't remember but um nice so it, it was full contact in, in the taekwondo days but i did kung fu jeet kune do like i did like a bunch of different tons of martial arts karate i loved full contact sports and i um in my later days in high school i actually started wrestling for the university team before i went to university which was the local university is Brock University um, in Niagara for, and I'm, I live in Canada. A lot of people think I'm from the U.S., but I'm actually Canadian. And Brock University is pretty much the premier university for wrestling in all of Canada. Wow. So all of my friends are Olympians. A lot of them have done like UFC. A lot of the people that I used to wrestle with were like UFC champions. And um, so... All contact sports was a big deal for me. And so when I was in high school, I got accepted at a really good university called Western Ontario for computer science and Waterloo, which is also a good, uh, a good school. And I got accepted at Brock and I made the decision that I was going to wrestle instead of doing computer science, even though I wanted to make video games. So my first degree is actually in physical education in which I was on the wrestling team I did pretty well, but not as well as my friends. My friends are, like I said, Olympians, and they've done quite well um, on the sort of wrestling circuit. And then when I graduated uh, from phys ed, um, I had just met Joanna at the time, who's now my wife. We've been, our 30th anniversary is coming up May 29th, so it's very close. It's going to be 30 years soon. Congrats. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we dated for seven years, so we've been together almost 40 years now. Um, and um, But back then... I was, well, what am I going to do? And I wanted to make video games. So I put myself through computer science, quit wrestling and uh, went through, did computer science, then did a master's in computer science. So I actually have three degrees and it all came from starting off as this full contact, working out six hours a day, uh, totally into martial arts and sports and all I could do to transitioning to I guess is a, a complete nerd <laughs> and, and ma making, making video games. But I, I literally put myself through school 
uh, in comp sci because I thought I didn't have the tools and I was very afraid that I was going to get in over my head. And but yeah, that's the story. So that's where all that background in martial arts come from. But yeah, so uh, Avid Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. I think I saw that in the theater and this was back before you could just watch movies on TV because I'm old now. I, I think I saw it in the theater at least 60 times. Wow. So every time it would come around, I'd go watch it. I'd memorize it. And that's why I took Jeet Kune Do. I had, a, I had a really good instructor and we talked about, you know, the philosophy of, you know, Bruce Lee's philosophy and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm huge, huge, huge into martial arts and I still am today. And uh, so between sort of action movies and horror films and uh, it's still it's still still my thing so yeah uh, I don't get to talk about that very often so thanks for that question no worries well it kind of leads into my next question because have you been able to utilize that martial arts or wrestling into video games somehow like whether you're directing an animator in terms of rigging an animation of a character of some sort um in some ways yes but in a different way so I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, yeah, to some extent, but not largely, no, we don't do too many fighting games, uh, though our games are very action oriented and tend to lean towards, you know, the science fiction or supernatural area. So, you know, when you, you take something like, um, oh, I don't know, uh, Metal Gear or like Blood Omen Legacy of Kane, it's a lot of research into the lore and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of try to, back then, when we're creating Legacy of Kane as an example, because being involved in all these martial sports, I was always like, why would a vampire ever give up a sword? <laughs> like, I get that you're super fast, but why not use that sword to be even better? You know, yeah. <laughs> why not cast magic? And that sort of got me into Warhammer. I'm a big Warhammer fan. And in Warhammer, of course, they're, all the vampires are, you know, military and they use all of that stuff. I'm like, this is the kind of vampires that I want to create. And that's sort of, one of the ways that sort of came came around in a lot of uh, Elric stuff, but I think where it's really helped and had a massive influence on me is um, just the idea of perseverance. Um, so wrestling is a really good example. Um, so compared to any other sport that I've done, when you lose a wrestling match, you get beat up. It hurts. You don't like losing. Um, it's not a sport that you generally, it's not like football. There's no cheerleading section. Uh, you know, generally right. <laughs> members of the opposite sex of the opposite sex don't watch wrestlers. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like football or baseball or so it's a very low prestige sport. It's really hard to train. You have to train a ton. And you get hurt all the time. And when you lose, it's really terrible. But what it does give you, um, and same with the martial arts, it gives you this level of perseverance uh, and pain endurance. And that's what I would say for anyone who's going into the video game industry. Uh, I love making video games, but it's hard. It's really, really tough. And there's all kinds of sort of things that I always recommend uh, to um a lot of upcoming video game designers. But if there's one thing I would always recommend is just survive. Do what you need to do to survive because you cannot predict technology. You cannot predict the way the industry is going to go. But if you can survive, you'll eventually make something that you love. You'll get there. 
And that's kind of where I think sort of the wrestling and all the martial arts training came in because, you know, you're training for the Olympic team and you lose by one point and which is what happened to me. I was the runner up for the Canadian Olympic team when I was wrestling. And it's, it's kind of like, I was the bridesmaid a lot when it came to the sports and a lot of my, a lot of my really, like really good friends, they did make the Olympic team or, you know, some of them won some UFCs. And so they're, they're, they're pretty tough hombres, but just even hanging around those guys and getting beat up by them in, in a friendly way, yeah. um, but it still really hurts. Um, it, it, it builds character. And I think, I think, having that for video games is really important because the industry is completely merciless and fans out there, they oh, don't, yeah. they don't like what you're doing. You're going to get it. So it, it helps that way. Well, there's also a disconnect as well, right? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of gamers don't actually understand what goes on behind the scenes with what you guys do, right? There's a lot of yeah. pressure, a lot of anxiety, particularly, I suppose, near the end where you'll have like a, a crunch period, I'm sure, where you've got mm -hmm. a deadline and you've got to hit it. So yeah. uh, in terms of martial arts, like, do you practice meditation or some other practices that result in removing the anxiety or de-stressing you somewhat? Yeah, you... <laughs> it's kind of funny that you ask these things. Um, so I, I, I don't meditate very often. It's very rare for me. Um, but I, I guess I kind of have a, a very Bushido mentality mm. um, when it comes to a lot of things and and what that means is uh, when you're going into a tough uh, time, which happens often in the video game industry, it's it's completely opaque. People have no idea what it's like. Uh, a lot of people think it's fun and games and it's, it's really hard. You're competing worldwide. There's really no barriers. So when we create something, someone in Japan could be creating something better. Someone in, you know, uh, Hong Kong or, you know, somewhere in France, who knows where, it's just completely open and it's there's thousands and thousands of games released every year. So it's extremely competitive. And what I tend to do, I guess, where I think the tenacity is really helped from the martial arts point of view is there's this sort of samurai philosophy of what a samurai used to do before he would go out um, and do whatever samurais do, which is essentially police or be part of the, you know, part of the military, they prepare for death. So they just assume, okay, if I'm going to die, I have to get all my stuff in order. So when they would go into battle, they wouldn't fear death. And that's kind of a lot of <laughs> things that, that I, I tend to do is I just plan absolutely for the worst case and like, okay, I've done everything I can. And then I don't think about it anymore. Then I just go in to win and, and to go in to, you know, do, do my job and, you know, make this game as good as it can be. And because you will hear, um, it's very, very easy to criticize. It's very easy to say that this is not going to work because quite frankly, in the video game industry, there's way more failures than there are successes. That's true. And um, I remember Mark Cerny, who's who's a friend of mine, when we finished Legacy of Kane, um, <laughs> we had an ongoing bet. Uh, his game, uh, it's Crash Bandicoot. I, I, I lost the bet. I said Kane would do better than Crash. Uh, it did not, wow. but it still did well. Um, and I said I would buy him dinner. Um, so I, I bought him dinner. We went out for dinner. And one of the things he told me it was very insightful and very thoughtful um, was he's like, okay, you've had a hit. And now you need to determine if if that was just luck or you actually know what you're doing. So he's like, come talk to me when you have another hit. 
And I, I, I really uh, took that to heart um, because you do see in the video game in the in industry quite a bit, teams that will have one hit and they can't do it again. And there is timing and luck involved with everything, but there are groups that have several hits. And if you can, if you, if, uh, if you can make more than one successful title, like really successful title that people know that millions of people know, um, then that to me is, you know, true success and true kind of, um, you know, that kind of focus. And so I'll always remember that from Mark. He's, uh, you know, he, we, we worked together on Legacy of Kane uh, back in the day. He was at Crystal Dynamics. And when we got that first PlayStation uh, in, we, we had the first PlayStation in North America when we were working on Legacy of Kane. And all the instructions were in Japanese. And he was he spoke fluent Japanese. So he was he was helping us with that. And he, it was pretty cool. So anyway, just a bit of a story there. Yeah, yeah. So with Eternal Darkness, because that's that's an odd one because it was critically acclaimed as one of the best games on GameCube, but it didn't sell well as well, right? Yeah, well, um, not that's not actually true uh, to an extent. So it sold really well um, from a penetration point of view, which means the number it sold compared to the console. So yes. I think it sold around a million, but the GameCube was Nintendo's worst selling console of all time. <laughs> At the time, yeah. 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 And I think I think it still is, but I, I could oh, be wrong. Oh, Wii, Wii U is. Wii U is. Oh, was it worse? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Far worse. I, I have I have <laughs> I have I haven't kept up, but um so like I remember a lot of people saying, man, if that would have came out on the PlayStation 2, you would have sold like crazy numbers. Um, but we we didn't care. So from from that standpoint, it's kind of so my favorite movie of all time, or one of my favorite movies of all time, is John Carpenter's The Thing. Ah, uh, yes. And right, I love that movie. I always have. I saw it when I was 15, so I kind of snuck into the show with a friend. Um, terrified me. Um, and it came out around the same time as E.T. And everyone was talking about E.T. And I don't know what it is with me, but I clearly like very dark horror. And uh, that movie terrified me, but I was like, man, why is it, why do people care? About, like E.T. was good. I remember liking E.T., but I was like, compared to The Thing, this is awesome. And The Thing um, did awful at the box office. And as a matter of fact, John Carpenter, who's one of my favorite directors of all time, uh, he's seminal in a lot of the way I think about horror and, and creating things. Um, he had a hard time getting like work after that it was it was it, and i was just like wow um and that turned out to be his most iconic uh movie as far as i'm concerned he's done a lot like big trouble in little china he's done a lot of great great work in my opinion but if if eternal darkness ends up being the same in that way so yes we didn't sell 10 million units of eternal darkness but i know so many people that consider eternal darkness to be their favorite game of all time including many of the people I worked at with Nintendo on that project. We're very proud of it. And, you know, um, I think in many ways it was ahead of its time. We were talking about quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, what, what does replayability mean uh, from, you know, multiple timelines. And, you know, we had, we were doing Lovecraft before it was cool. Um, now it's, it's almost popular culture now. And back then, people didn't even know what Lovecraft was, so it was kind of it was kind of fun. But yeah, so 
is mostly the console, in my opinion, because I think we had like 33% penetration. So I we we sold one third of the consoles. And in, in some ways, maybe other titles like some of the, the bigger ones got over that, but that was just incredible, you know, penetration. And those were for titles that had done um have been around forever, like Mario and Zelda and all that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if a remaster in this day and age would cause it to sell a lot better. I mean, I was playing Metroid Prime Remastered recently and, and it made me think, I was like, oh, Eternal Darkness would benefit so much from this. I think almost get like get a second wind. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think so. Um, I There's not, you know, we started, so just going to Dead House Sonata just really quickly. We're, we're making Dead House Sonata. We're doing a lot of crazy things. Some of the stuff we haven't announced yet, and we're trying to create the holy grail of sort of narrative and some of the things we're doing, but just sort of push that aside for now. More than anything else, we're trying to bring the voice of games like Eternal Darkness and Legacy of Cain that have essentially become extinguished. Yeah, uh, Games like those are not being made anymore. And so that was one of the reasons we started working on Dead House. We're like, we need to make a game like that because no one's doing them anymore. Um, so yeah, that's. Uh, I, I do agree that I think it would resonate, and uh, we do get asked all the time. It's <laughs> it's a lot of fun stuff there. So who knows? Maybe someday. Well, I suppose even if it was allocated to some sort of third party studio or something, and you oversee it, possibly. Because yeah, I know you, kinds... you don't you don't have the bandwidth to do it now. I mean, it would be impossible. There, there's, 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 you never, you never know how things are going to go in the industry. I've learned, I learned that a long time ago, back, um, this is even pre legacy of Cain. Our first game that we worked on, I was heavy into, and this is just an example of how you can't predict things. Uh, the first game we did, I programmed in assembly code with a bunch of other people on the Atari ST and on the Amiga and on the PC. And back in those days, the Amiga was vastly superior to the PC. And the, it was, the ST was pretty close. And it was kind of a, like, I still think technically the Amiga was the best system because it could multitask and did all these crazy things. And I thought, you know, no one's, there's no way the PC is going to win over these technologies. And it had nothing to do with the tech. It had to do with marketing and adoption. And, and so a lot of times, you know, we try to predict which way the industry is going to go. And it's, 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 you shouldn't <laughs> because um, you just can't. And like, even, even today, um, we don't know um, where things are probably going to go. We can kind of guess, but it's very, very difficult. Um, so it's best just to go with the flow and focus on what you know, and just keep creating the great games. And after that, my lesson learned was, okay, so I was totally wrong on all these hardware platforms. So let's just start creating games that the hardware platform doesn't matter. Just, just think of the medium, think what we can do, and let's create games in the medium as we best know how, which is how, you know, Legacy of Kane and Eternal Darkness and Metal Gear and all those games like that came about, so... How long did it take you to settle on the camera system that you have in Eternal Darkness? Was that long some... time? Yeah, yeah. Because I imagine I'm because you were inspired by Resident Evil. I know, I know you yeah. love that game, and that played yes. some part in it. I'm sure. Um, 
So, okay, so here's the story to that. Um, we we're pitching a totally different game to Nintendo. Um, we were doing some technology tests to show them that we could work on the N64. We were working on the N64 ahead of time um, before it eventually went to the GameCube, but that's another story. Um, and so we're doing some technology tests and um, Resident Evil 2 came out, which is my favorite Resident Evil of all time. And I was getting, I was flying down to Seattle to do the pitch. And I think Resident Evil came out like three days before I was supposed to Yeah, go. yeah, that's right. And so the pitch was ready. And me being very young and <laughs> just being a gamer, I stayed up all night for like three nights in a row playing Resident Evil. And I finished it and I loved it. And I went to Nintendo, a wreck, basically, uh, our producer there, his name's Henry Searchy, good friend of mine now. He just looked at me and he's like, dude, you look like hell. <laughs> I'm like, I know, I just stayed up for the last three days playing Resident Evil. And he's like, oh, isn't it awesome? And we started talking about it. And uh, and what I liked about Resident Evil, which really, uh, I, 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 it hadn't happened in movies yet. Eventually it came in movies, but you play the perspective of these different characters. And I love that. I was just like, Hey, that's really cool. You play the story one way and then you see it as the character the other way. And that's what I really loved. And so it's like multiple characters in the sort of um, how you would see things through the eyes of different people. I thought that was really interesting. And so we're pitching this other project and, you know, Henry and I were talking, he's like, dude, you shouldn't pitch. You look like hell. You just go home. <laughs> and I did. He said, but why don't we do something like Resident Evil, but it can't be a clone of Resident Evil. It'll never get accepted at Nintendo. And I'm like, no, 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 no. What if we did something like Lovecraft? And he's like, yeah, what's Lovecraft? And we started talking about a bit about it. And I went away, came back like a few weeks later, had like a plot line with 12 different characters, um, which was the inspiration from Resident Evil in that sense. And it was horror, but it wasn't going to be survival horror. Um, we thought that, you know, that they had done survival horror well enough. We didn't, that's that was their sort of genre so what we wanted to do is tell some real narrative try to think keep things contextual and then a lot of people don't know this but um, i'm i'm very um a big prescriber in academia and having academic foundations that's right for what yeah 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 um, psychology as well somewhere. correct yep so um we had a psychologist on staff and we had uh a film expert on staff from the local university and uh, they were full-time uh, not full-time but they were involved in the company a lot they would lecture to the company when we were doing the sanity effects as an example john mitter who was uh, the psychologist we did focus testing to see what the reactions were for the sanity effects and we sort of worked on ways that we knew they would be effective and then there was uh you know dr barry grant who's a, a, a still a good friend of mine and we still go watch movies together um he was a film expert and I said to him, we need to start analyzing film and, you know, should we go back then there was a big push within Nintendo to go first person. And um, I wanted to know the film theory behind um, why, because film started out as first person. A lot of people don't know this, but initially film was all first person. Then they went to third person to better tell story and to see facial expression. And I actually started asking those questions. And, and so we started doing research and um, we got a whole team together and said, 
we want a camera system that allows us because in film to speak the language of film because in film um dialogue you don't need to be constantly explaining things through exposition the language of film allows you to tell stories through upshots and downshots and i felt very strongly that we could learn from the film industry and we had an expert already with us um and so we developed that camera system to really speak the language of film and it was a it was a hit and after that a lot of games adopted it like um oh i i like assassin's creed after after a while sort of looked at it um um, I'm blanking on the other name. What's the big Sony game? <laughs> I shouldn't blank on this. Um, but a lot of games adopted it after that to where there's a smooth camera. It was a sort of third person. And we had to pitch this to Miyamoto-san. Uh, he was very worried that it was too complex. So the idea was if we had an adaptive camera where it wasn't difficult to control at the same time could be third person, it could be quite enjoyable and simplistic to the players. And we did a prototype he loved it and boom uh eternal darkness went away from being first person to third person uh which i was very happy with so um sorry god of war was the game i was thinking of god of war did a lot of very similar yes. camera things after yeah. eternal that, darkness came out. a lot of games did frankly that's interesting because metroid prime was first person well yes partly first person so i'm wondering if that has Correct. something to do with that yeah so uh, because nintendo are, they're big more into prototyping rather than pitches right so do you spend more time when it, you do a basic pitch and then you get into the gritty stuff with the prototype to really sell the idea to them because that stuff would be yeah. hard to convey in words i would think i mean you've done a pretty good job now but it's oh, it's, it's it's better to show and tell I would yeah think. it's it's a whole philosophy and um so i was told just actually about a year ago that people generally see me as a Japanese developer because of all these theories. And I, I'm a big prescriber <laughs> to the Nintendo way. And, but let you, me explain it. But you speak Japanese uh, as well, though. That might have something. I, I do. Yeah. I do. It's very rusty though. It's very <laughs> rusty, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I do. And uh, I, I need to pick it back up. That's for sure. Um, but um, there's sort of two schools of thought. There's kind of the Japanese sort of, what I would say is development driven. So you have companies that are focusing purely on development and then the marketing will come second. And then there's more of the Western way, which quite frankly is marketing led and you'll see huge marketing budgets. And that's how it, it, it seeps into the development process as well. So as an example, um, we had a game design document this thick for eternal darkness it was massive it had the story it had all the game design it had the spell system had the sanity system we had all of that stuff in this massive document and when we were pitching it in nintendo of america they wanted all that stuff okay but um we talked about marketing and how it was going to go when we went to japan to get it approved because that's where approval came from miyamoto-san and uh, the group there first thing miyamoto-san said is I'm not reading anything. <laughs> Give me a controller and I'll tell you if we're going to move forward, which is terrifying. But also at the same time, you have this level of confidence that, you know, if you do something good, they'll recognize it. 
Um, and that's development-driven philosophies. There are few companies who do that. Nintendo's one of them. There are others out there, but they're the rare exception, which I personally like. And that's why people, I still, to this day, even if you look at Dead House Sonata, first thing we did was a combat prototype. It's got nothing to do with the game, but here's the combat. And we got feedback from our community. We'll continue to go in that way. It was very development-driven. Where a lot of the West is very marketing-driven. So a lot of games with literally no foundation whatsoever but all of these big ideas and big graphics and lots of money being spent and really good marketing campaigns and catchphrases um that's how most games are made and that's very western so you you have the the marketing and the positioning of it and the idea of the game supersedes everything where and I, i'm just not that comfortable with that kind of thing so i'm always about you have to have a it's sort of one of the rules uh, that I learned very quickly, what you're doing the most in a game needs to be engaging, enjoyable by the player. So you start really small and you build out from it. That's very Japanese. Um, a lot of other games, there's like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And there's no pro there's prototyping, but it's all, it's all more. It's minor. Of a, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a sustainable model to be honest, to do it that way. But clearly, it's. I, I guess it's working though. It does work. It does work. It's surprisingly. It's surprisingly effective. And what happen, What tends to happen is, you get some good ideas that actually have a good development team, and those percent stick. Um, and it, it's it's just the way the industry is. So there are way more failures in the West than there are in, say, Japan. Hmm. But that's because in Japan, they'll prototype something out for a couple of years. And then once they're somewhere, they'll actually build it into a full title and go. That's very, that happens a lot within Nintendo and, and a lot of things people don't know where in North America, uh, in the West or in Europe, just tons of games get green light and tons of games get canceled, <laughs> right? And you, you sometimes hear about them, sometimes you don't. But there will be like Call of Duty is a really good example of a very good dev team that came across uh, upon a really good marketing idea and then boom, they all came together. Our Grand Theft Auto, another really good yeah. example of a really good idea with a good dev team. But a lot of the times it's usually a good idea with a bad dev team or um, a really good developer with a bad idea and some good market. It, it's, it's, but 90% of those will fail. And you just, um, <laughs> you'll see when Nintendo comes out with a game, usually um, I think there's a higher level of confidence from the consumer yes. that it's going to be good. And that's because Nintendo cares and it's their development philosophy brings that way. And those are the kind of things that, you know, I agree with too. And you see that from Sony as well, from their internal studios, you know, so you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of that. And then where you have um, some of the Western companies like Microsoft, um, you're seeing just a ton of titles. Some will hit, some won't, but it's, it's kind of like a, a mass um, just a, a mass foray into just a ton of titles, a ton of development um, where one is more quantity over quality is the way I would describe it. So, mm. and there's not, neither are bad. I'm not criticizing either way. It just seems those are the ways that I would qualify the differences. It's a good way of putting it. When you were working on Eternal Darkness, was there any plans to have more enemies or was it just a, a case of budget and because animation rigs are quite expensive as well, right? So to create a model and the animation rig is 
expensive, or it was then. So yeah, no, to extend it further. There weren't more. No, not really. Uh, we really, we, we didn't really have any limits that way. Um, gaming was very different back then. So um, don't forget, we went from the N64 to the GameCube. Yeah. And then so, you hit the whole 9-11 fiasco as well. So you, you guys, like, yeah, you went through peaks and valleys. It was a crazy. long, so even, a long, long even with, tribulation. Yeah, even with a super stable partner like Nintendo, the ride was still completely insane and the project almost got canceled, right? Yeah. And it was very close to being, I, I remember right after 9-11 flying to Japan, it was $99 round trip first class and the plane was empty. No one was flying. It was insane. And it was, the world changed forever after that. Um and now you look at COVID, there's just, you can't predict things, right? Yeah, so, yeah that's right. Um, I would say Nintendo allowed us to do virtually everything that we wanted to do. And the only thing uh, for scope that was maybe curtailed was maybe some intricate design stuff that really most people don't notice and only the people like me care about. But overall... And it was just because, so as an example, and they were just worried about permutations and it was a quality concern, which, you know, I agree with and concur. I just, I'm just super aggressive when it comes to some designs. So we limited what some of the enemies could spawn. You know, we had that summoner. Um, well, in, in the final game, we limited what it could summon. I, I originally had a design, so summoners were summoning other summoners and, it would just cascade into this crazy oh, wow. matrix of if you don't kill them really fast, you're in big trouble. You're going to die. And um, Nintendo was very worried that that would just blow the scope out of the test schedule and we'd never get the game done. Um, and when they tested, they wanted everything to be uh, really solid. So I, I did concur with that. I would have pushed out the testing schedule by some of these things quite a bit. And um so I was sad panda, but at the same time, I, I understood the scope. These are in today's world where you can patch like instantly. Yeah. It, it would have been a different story, but back then you you had one shot, right? It's you maybe could do a patch, but if you did a patch, you're in trouble. And I don't think Eternal Darkness was ever patched. So mm. so what what is your relationship? Well, I suppose now with Miyamoto, and what was your relationship like with Iwata? Because um, he had very, a part very, to play in Metal Gear Solid, yeah. right? And and that becoming a thing. Oh for yeah, you. yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, so, uh, so I consider Miyamoto and myself friends. Of course, I haven't seen him in a while, um, but uh, we're we're pretty pretty good friends. And uh, same same with <clears throat> Awadasan. Awadasan was the first person I met from Nintendo Japan, and he came. To Silicon Knights as a mysterious consultant. Um, oh, okay, <laughs> that's all we were what? told is he was the consultant, and so he came down and he just wanted to. He stayed at the company for about a week or two weeks, and he was just doing everything. He was going through our business books. Um, he was looking at development, just talking to the team members. Honestly, it was I was at the time I had no idea kind of what was happening. And then he went back and he recommended that Nintendo buy Silicon Knights. I had no idea. Really? Was, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And um, so that's how I first met Awadasan. And again, he, I don't even think he was officially part of Nintendo yet. And then, um, so he recommended that, that all went forward and all that happened, which was awesome. And then he, suddenly he became president. And I remember sitting down with him and I was like, <laughs> dude, what's going on? He goes, you know what he said? He's like, I know, really, huh? Surprise. And I was like, uh, yeah. And he's like, it's going to be harder for us to talk casually. And I go, I get it. Yeah. Um, because suddenly he became the president of Nintendo. Um, and frankly, that was how sort of Metal Gear kind of happened too. So we were, um, we had just finished Eternal Darkness. And I can send you a picture. I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any images up on, on, on the blog and stuff, but um, I'm happy to send you a picture. Yeah, when yeah I send went it to me. There. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a very rare picture. I think you'll like it. Um, I met Yamauchi-san. Uh, so there was like Yamauchi-san, Miyamoto-san, Awada-san, a bunch of guys from Silicon Knights, a few others from Nintendo. Uh, we all got together in a picture and that's when Yamauchi-san retired and Awada was stepping up as president. So that's when all officially renounced. It was, it was around my birthday. It was in July. And um so we were there talking about another product and once again, just like eternal darkness. And so the next day, so we got all those, it was really cool. I would, I hoped I could meet Yamauchi-san at some point, And I did, I got a chance to meet him and speak with him a little bit. Um, but we're, I was sitting down in the cafeteria at Nintendo in Japan and it's this big open cafeteria. So, and I was just chilling, eating and Miyamoto-san came down, sat beside me, and we were just talking. He speaks fluent English. His English is very good. Really? And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of yeah, people yeah. don't think that because he speaks mostly in Japanese. So, Well, it's good. Surprising. It's good. He has Bill, Bill who's awesome. Uh, yeah, Bill is yeah. always a translator. It can get tricky, right? It's not his first language. And because he has such an important role at Nintendo, um, but casually, if you're not talking business, his English is really good. And uh, he's a great guy. I, I really... Uh, it was really fun working with them. And um, so we were just talking, chilling, and I didn't think anything of it because this happened all the time when I was in Japan. Um, a lot of people don't know this. He didn't have an office. He had a he had a cubicle like everyone else. And I'd be often sitting in his cubicle. We'd be talking about gaming and stuff like that and philosophy and how what the future of gaming is. But then uh, Awadasan came by as well. And he sat down with us. Then suddenly the whole cafeteria was looking at us. And I'm like, what is going on? And uh, so then I think it was Miyamoto-san who said, um, hey, Dennis, what do you think about doing a Metal Gear? And I'm like, I, I almost choked. I did choke on my food. I was like, what? I was like, how is this possible? Sure, it'd be a lot of fun. But that's that's a Konami game. It's not It's not a Nintendo game, right? And he's like, well, you know... I was talking to Kojima-san and he really wants to work with us, but uh, you know, his team's really busy. Yeah. And he said, if he had another team that he would definitely do like a Nintendo exclusive uh, for Metal Gear. And so I said to him, this is Miyamoto-san talking. I said to him, well, I have a really good team who, who, who's available for a project. And he goes, that's you. And I go, Oh, no pressure. And I said, you really, you really want us to do this? He goes, yes. And, he, and I said, okay, if you want us to do it, we'll do it. It'll be a lot of fun. He goes, well, that's really good because we're taking a bullet train tomorrow to Konami and we're going to sign the deal and we really want you to be in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then boom, that's how Metal Gear started. So I came back, you know, to 
Silicon Knights after that. And I was like, okay, we're working on Metal Gear. And then I took like, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 people to Konami a couple of weeks later. The whole team was in shock. It was a lot of fun. That that Making that game was also awesome. And Kojima-san is awesome. And it was really fun working with him too. So it was great. Those were good times. So what were the internal discussions like in terms of deciding what to keep, what to improve on? Like the first person mode, for example. Yeah. How... Um, how far in the development or the discussions take place? Yeah. So um, one of the things to think about, and this is, it's really different than again, Western developers. Why and why I love the sort of Japanese way of developing first and foremost, um, you know, Kojima believes in this too. Kojima-san is what is the experience we're going to give to gamers? So when we were doing this, we were like, we don't want to do a remake or just a port to the GameCube. It's a waste of everyone's time. So what kind of unique experience can we give Nintendo gamers for Metal Gear? So we wanted to combine the best worlds of what at the time was Metal Gear 2, because that's been out now, and Kojima-san was working on Metal Gear 3, but that was early in development at the time. Mm. And Metal Gear 1, so the story of Metal Gear 1 with the gameplay of Metal Gear 2 with cinema that's going to be, you know, totally different. Um, and the, the impetus was to focus on quality and give gamers the best experience possible, not just to do, uh, frankly, a cheap port, because Nintendo would have nothing to do with that. I don't think Kojima wanted to do that either. So, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Konami and Nintendo, everyone got together, and we all agreed upon, here's our, the pillars that we're going to do, and it was really aggressive. Um, but it was really fun, and um, that's why I think Generally, I'm, I'm told this a lot from the, the super hardcore core Metal Gear fans is that, you know, Twin Snakes was very, very different compared to the other Metal Gear Solid games. Mm. And uh, the people liked it. It was a unique experience. And I'm glad for that. It was, you know, it de definitely got some criticism for sure of being a little different, especially with the cinemas. But overall, um, it all came down to what can we do? And Ko Kojima-san and myself talked about the first person thing. And he was like, do you think it'll make it better or worse? And we had a good discussion on this. And it, it really came down to, I think it'll be cool and better. Some people argue it makes the boss fights easier, which I think it's true. But it gives that unique experience that I was talking about initially. And I think that's why it won out overall. Um, and it, it's those kind of discussions uh, that you have that, you know, that I, I think make things stand out. And um you know, having the ability to make, you know, decisions like that, that hopefully will, you know, put the game over that tipping point that people remember it for are the things that, uh, you know, for me are the most exhilarating when it comes to game design. Mm. There's a funny little Easter egg that I think is cool where I think it's at the Otacon introduction and you, there's Mario and Yoshi on, on a computer screen. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, how did that come about? Was that something you thought of or someone within your team or did Nintendo recommend it as an Easter egg? How did it come about? Um, I think it was kind of a collaboration on that. It's definitely someone came up with the idea, but everything uh, has to be approved by everybody. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so 
we you definitely can't get Easter eggs in like that without it getting improved. Um, so everyone knew, and the whole idea about the collaboration was let's get some unique Nintendo ideas in there. Let's get some unique, you know, like I like there's um I don't know if you've seen the Bernie pictures like of Miyamoto-san, Awada-san, Kojima-san, all us up there, you know, during some of the sanity effects and stuff like that going on in Metal Gear. That was all carefully coordinated. All the ghost pictures, all of those things um, were carefully checked by everyone. But the idea was, let's bring in all of these worlds together. Let's do this unique collaboration, which I think is one of the most memorable things about that project. When you think about it, you had three companies, you know, really working towards something very different that I haven't seen anything like that since. Um getting three companies together to create a very successful project, in my opinion. Um, it's it's just very rare. So it was kind of unique that way. And it was because everyone was very willing to cooperate and it took a long time and it was very stressful. I like everything else in the games industry, but it, it was, it was pretty fun. Do you have a most stressful project? Ooh. Oh, they're all stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, it's a good answer. Um, yeah, I would say I would say probably Eternal Darkness in many ways was probably one of the most stressful ones, mostly because it almost I knew how good it was uh, as we were developing it and seeing it almost get canceled by geopolitical things that had literally nothing to do with us, and um, and it was a really strange time where the arguments for being canceled were legitimate. They weren't, they weren't just random. They weren't, they were like, look, all this crazy stuff is happening. Should we be doing this? And then um, I basically had to make some huge guarantees that when we rewrote some of this stuff that we do it clean, no one would be insulted and that we could do it in a short period of time. Cause it like, it was eternal darkness was on track to be a launch title until nine 11. Yeah, that's right. It was. Yeah. So we had to rewrite like one third or one quarter of all of the stories. And we had to strip out uh, all kinds of graphics and change things around. It, and, you know, cause we had a crusader in there. And at the time um, having a crusader in there was not a good idea. Um, Particularly that's that just, time. yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, being too, being too clever sometimes with historical See, the idea with Eternal Darkness, of course, was, you know, these uh, ancients are controlling catastrophes. And we had various different hotspots in the world that turned out to still be pretty hot. And um, so that's when, um, from a perspective of, uh, you know, the content, we really had to be careful and, and fix it all up. But that was pretty stressful. Um, I, it was 50-50 whether the game was going to get canceled. So it was pretty scary. How, how do you keep up the energy and the motivation, particularly on a game like that, where you've gone through, you know, the, the fact that it was going to be on the Nintendo 64, then it gets moved to the GameCube. So you have to start from scratch. Then the whole 9-11 thing. Uh, how do you prevent yourself from getting mental fatigue and just wanting the whole thing just to be over? You know, that's, that's going back to the early, that's going back to the martial arts and the wrestling. Yeah. That perseverance, that's where that stuff really helped me. And um, 
there's a bunch of sayings like Winston Churchill uh, had one that I, I strongly agree with. And it's like, I think the, the quote is when you're going through hell, just keep going. And um, the, and you know, I know this relative, like there's many worse situations in the world, but when it comes to your job and potentially seeing everything just come crashing down, the best thing you can do is just really focus and put one foot in front of the other and keep going. I, I don't, I don't know in the end, except what I do know is I love making games. Um, I try to envision myself doing other things uh, like the martial arts. It's not like I can't do other things, but I just love it so much. And I love the ability to, I guess, give people catharsis and make them think. I've had so many people come to me and say, Hey, you know, that plot line in legacy of Cain or, what you did with eternal darkness here and this kind of idea has really influenced, you know, me growing up when I was playing games. So that is, that is better than any award. It's better, you know, th those kind of things, because that's why I wanted to create video games. Um, I was influenced in a similar way when I had these experiences, it was back with Ultima three back in the day. I remember getting, playing that game and just going, wow, this is better I was reading the Elric series at the same time. I remember it all very vividly. And as good as the Elric series was, one of my favorite stories of all time, um, it could not compare to that experience I got playing on the Atari ST, I think, on Ultima 3 with that membrane keyboard. Um, just that sort of interactive, um, that kept me going. And I would stay up all night playing it, lose track of time. Yeah, it gets into engagement theory and all these other kind of things that we think really make people tick when they play games. And that uh, sort of fuel keeps me going through these things, through these tough times, because I felt very strongly that Eternal Darkness was a game that need, needed to be made. Because back in the day, and still you hear it once in a while, but not very often, a lot of people thought game was an art, that narrative wasn't important. And um, I, I, I strongly disagree with those things. I think narrative isn't, I don't think it's everything. And I think there's different ways to make games. Some people focus on gameplay. Some people focus on artwork. Some people focus on story narrative. There's many ways to create a game, but I do think um, just like, you know, coming back to why we're creating Dead House Sonata, narrative is, is something where I think, I, th I think really can help entertain people and and you know that's what we do we're entertainers right so anyway so that's what keeps me going just that that feeling that exhilaration and knowing that when the game comes out it'll all be worth it in the end so how hard is it to build a game around narrative though because like if, if you've got a gameplay oriented game usually you can swap things and change things around as they go when you when you've built an entire game around a narrative then when you, if you start changing the narrative around when you're partway through the game, then it means you have to, it creates a bit of a domino effect, doesn't it? Where you have to change a lot of other things. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. Um, and that gets, again, more more sort of philosophy and schools of thought. Uh, there's sort of two schools of thought when it comes to creating narrative and story. And one is the traditional Hollywood Aristotle's approach of the three-act narrative. And then there's the other sort of approach was kind of like Tolkien-esque where you do world building, you do a ton of world building. And then from there, you don't follow a three act narrative. You, you build tons of detail up and then you create 
you know, plot lines once you've got that foundation established. That's that's a much rarer way of doing it. You see things like Tolkien or Babylon 5 or where sort of the background and the mythos almost takes more in a more important nature than some of the characters themselves. And um, that's the philosophy I take. And actually for creating games, you know, you combine that, my love for that type of style and that school of thought, combine that with computer science, where now we're getting into procedurally generated narrative, artificial intelligence. It's coming all into its own now. It actually makes it easier. So if you were to create a three-act narrative and something in gameplay doesn't work out, you're in big trouble when it comes to that. But if you create this awesome base, which is what we did for Eternal Darkness, we created all these gods, we created these pantheons, and we had the story laid out for sure, but it was done in such a way that it could change. And that's how we were able to rewrite it, because we we're like, well, we've got these rules established in our universe. We don't have this plot that rules everything. And that typically is what happens with the three-act Aristotle sort of approach, where if you if you sort of go the Tolkien way, um, it is it is just a much it's much harder. It takes a lot longer, but uh, it gives you a foundation for not only sequels, but just the world building itself really uh, helps. So um, I, I, I think, but that's why, that's why these games are so rare because it's really hard. Yeah, it's much, yeah. it's much easier to do the Aristotle's way because that's where most Hollywood writers come from. And most writers are very familiar with that. We're doing it the other way. You, you basically do years of research uh, building this foundation to even before you can even come up with the basic storyline that may adapt and change. Um, so that's why they're so difficult is because it's very hard work. And it's uh, despite what people think, it's like 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. You've got to do a ton of research. a ton. Like we've done so much research for Dead House Sonata. You know, we, we know how many different vamp, like categorizing all the different types of undead, We've been going through chronologically doing all these things and like thinking about different houses. Well, one of the things people don't know about Dead House is, <laughs> and it's it's a huge game. We're starting out with the House of the Dead. It's called Dead House, but there's eight other houses. There's going to be different types of hierarchies. And oh wow, yeah. So um, and we're we're creating a really grim world where it's better off to be dead than alive. So. Um, we've got all these backgrounds and stories and hierarchies of the gods and why all this stuff is happening. And if you go to, um, and I'm using this as an illustrative example, it may seem like I'm trying to pump our game, which I do automatically, but it's really so to give people an illustration of what I'm talking about. We have hours of radio plays already that are outside of the main core of the game, just to give people an idea of the universe and the foundation that we're creating. So by the time people play the game, they will rest assured that the plot lines and the stories are going to be very well developed. Um, and it should be, hopefully, if things go well, knock on wood, an extremely engaging uh, experience for everybody plot-wise. So yeah, so they're, the answer is they're hard. <laughs> but have you, have you set a limit to yourself? And the team in terms of Dead House Sonata, in terms of, because obviously you can constantly keep getting ideas and keep building on this thing, right? Just keep going and going. So do you have to hone it in somewhat at some point and be like, okay, we're not well, going to add any more to this specific segment in terms of world building or animation or whatever? Well, yeah, you, you, you do that, but the way, the great thing and why I like free to play games and why we're, this is our first 
sort of my first free to play, but we've got like our COO who came on, Paul Rogozinski. He helped launch Warframe. He was at Digital Exchange for 12 years. He worked on Metal Gear with me. He, we've worked together for 10 years. Um, the free to play space, space allows us to iterate once we've launched. So it's completely the opposite of, say, Eternal Darkness, where we had no patches, we launched it, and that was it, and then we went on to the next one. That's kind of like the uh, typical AAA product launch. And the free-to-play model allows you to iterate with your audience and your your um, basically the community. And so we have an idea of where we want to get to launch. We have this whole concept of ages and there's a, it's a whole other thing we can get into. Um, but the idea is we're going to present narrative in a very different way than what people have seen before. And a narrative in a sense that if you look at Legacy of Cain is a really good example of this. Um, a, a lot of I, a lot of people have asked me kind of, well, what's your thing? Like when you create a game, what what? A lot of people think it's story, which I, I guess is true to a certain extent for sure. But I I don't think that story. My background's computer science. Um, I've gotten better at writing. I hope. Um, but uh, you know, I'm a computer scientist at heart. When it came to Legacy of Cain, the vision there was. I played Ultima 3 and um, many of these RPGs, Final Fantasies, which I love. What I hated, I mean hated, was having to read text on a TV that was back then very pixelated, very hard to read, your eyes got sore. Very poor medium for that. So we looked at Legacy of Kane, PlayStation 1's coming, has got this new technology called the CD-ROM. And for the first time, we could have voice acting. And so the vision for that game was no text. Everything is going to be voice acted by professional actors, which back then, um, I think we're either one of the first, if not the first, we're very close to the first Metal Gear when it launched. And Kojima-san used the same, many of the same voice actors we did. Hmm. Uh, and so we took the medium and we basically said, what can we use with this medium to propel narrative forward? And that's exactly where we are now with Dead House. And there's been titanic changes. So now we have insane advances in artificial intelligence. A lot of people don't know this, but my background from my master's was actually in neural networks and user interfaces. So Fantasy Empires, which was the second game I worked on, and I think it launched in 1992 or 93. It just became available on Steam, ironically. Um, but we, I, we implemented... A learning neural network in that and back then no one cared <laughs> it's hilarious but today we can now utilize the cloud and the internet and we can start using procedurally generated narrative and ai and start creating things that people never thought possible before and we're so excited on where we can take narrative and story and Man, I, we got a ton of crap or shit, you know, when we started first talking about Dead House Sonata, you know, a few years ago. And the first thing I got back was um, free-to-play game, narrative, that's an oxymoron. Get out of town, get lost, don't talk to me. People were like, do a single-player uh, RPG and you've got my money. <laughs> we are like, no, what do we want to do? And I actually... Uh, it's it's funny uh, and true at the same time and maybe sad, but um, being a creator, you you either stick to your guns or you don't. We we were offered by one very big group if we changed uh, 
eternal dark uh, not eternal darkness sorry dead house sonata um change it from a free-to-play game into a premium they take it right away and we'd have a big budget and the publishing deal would have been done a couple of years ago several years ago pre-pandemic now wow and we said no we just we don't we don't think it's the things that we're talking about now we really believe in we really believe that the free-to-play model is the best for narrative and I'm looking forward to showing people what we mean by that in the next few years. So stay tuned on that. But we've got a lot of exciting things to announce on it. But yeah, so if you're looking for some radical narrative um, and narrative in a way that's never been done before, uh, we think Dead House is going to be is going to be one of the games to look at in 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 the future. So, mm. so I suppose you'll be able to utilize in the future ChatGPT in a way for narratives to help. I mean, a lot of people are talking about plagiarism and copyright and all that stuff, but it's it's a tool at the end of the day, right? That you can use to just uh, give yourself more time to do other things if it can just fix a few things in terms of a narrative, I would think. Yeah, it's funny. Um, recently had a call with some business people. I'll just say business people. They leave it totally, um, totally anonymous. And then these business people we were talking to um, everyone's enamored by AI and like all new technologies, people don't tend to not understand technology. If anyone wants a reference, I recommend this book series It's very old now, still a very good read, easy read called the real world of technology by Ursula Franklin. I strongly recommend people check it out, probably read it in a couple hours. And it talks about the social effects of technology. And the mistake that people make is, they think that technology saves you time. There are millions of studies now that show that that is absolutely not true. And as a matter of fact, it's the opposite. What yeah. happens is tech, yeah, technology allows us to do more, but it also takes more time. So as an example, um, 100 years ago, if you and I were to communicate, I would send you a letter, you would send one back, right? And we would not be able to communicate as much. But the amount of time that you spent writing that letter to me and I spent writing to you would probably not even be an hour that we're going to do in this podcast. But now the bandwidth has expanded. We're now communicating very fast in real time. We're recording all this. It's going to go up as a podcast. You're going to reach millions of people, but it takes more time. And all of this technology and all the things that we did to set this up requires tremendous investment. So this AI, all these AIs coming out where people, there's a vast belief out there, particularly in the investment community, that someone's going to be able to push the magic button and say, I'm going to magically create a story-driven RPG with chat GPT and all these other things. That's absolutely not going to happen. And anyone who's going to start engaging in chat GPT and all of these other new artificial intelligence technologies, which I think they're really awesome, they need to prepare that it's going to take them way longer to make a game that way. If they're going to do it right. They might be able to push out some crap uh, that's going to be just garbage because if you play with chat GPT, yes, it will scan Wikipedia and give you quick answers. But if you actually try to have an in-depth conversation or really dig down, you realize very quickly it's only surface material it's yeah. giving you. So the trick is going to be combining what we know and how AI as a tool, very much like you said, can help us all out. Mm. And um, so games are going to take longer. They're going to be more expensive, but they're going to be way better because of these technologies. That's 
it's the way I look at it. And sorry if I cut you off. I get super hyped. No, 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 it's all right. It's all right. Well, uh, that's a that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, I could talk to you for hours on end, but I know you need to get back to work and work on Dead House. So Thanks. I look yeah, forward. Let's I look do forward. It again. To, yeah, yeah. I look forward to um, seeing it when it's when it's out. So a few years away still. Yes, it's not coming out anytime soon. <laughs> so sorry for any of the community that's listening, but we've been very upfront. We told them at the beginning of last year that it's not coming out this year. That's uh, definitely it's not coming out soon. However, when it does come out, it's going to be worth the wait. That's uh, that's our goal. So yeah. Well, what's that Miyamoto quote? Uh, a delay game is good but a, a bad game is forever bad or something like that i'm i'm missing a up delay. the quote yeah a, a, a delayed game i can't remember it but basically it says delaying a game is never popular but a bad game releasing a bad game is forever and I, that was actually on one of the posters for eternal darkness being when we because don't forget we had to delay it for a couple of years and then it got delayed <laughs> yeah and so, uh, yeah, we actually had that in our office. We had like an Eternal Darkness poster with that quote on it. Wow. Because it, and to get through those tough times, right? So, yeah. yeah. So if anyone wants to stay up to date with everything regarding uh, Dead House, where's the best place for them to do that? Um, DeadHouseSonata.com. Um, so Deadhouse House is in the German spelling. So H-A-U-S uh sonata.com and uh there's our discord you can jump into we generally try to release things just to keep the community up to date but it's still still got a ways to go everyone so it's not releasing uh anytime soon so just hold on to your hats though and check it out and you know we're often on the discord and i'll answer questions other people on the team will answer questions so we love all feedback good or bad mm. so you know feel free to uh jump in and, and give us your feedback Cool. Was Sonata a callback to Requiem, by the way? Because they're both musical references. So I was wondering. Um, yeah, it I, I you know, probably subconsciously. <laughs> oh, it's some level. Yeah, there's a whole um there's the whole thing with a sonata. Um when when it comes to when it comes to creating and telling a story. The structure of the sonata, the classical sonata, I think um, is it. you combine different ideas that eventually come out with this sort of cathartic outcome. And um, there are some musical aspects with Dead House Sonata, like there's a blood chant when you're the vampire and the, you start going faster and quicker. And the Lich, as an example, is... So I'm going to geek out here, but I love this stuff. <laughs> the Lich, when he's casting, when they're casting spells, I should say, um, are, it's going to be like music and it, it will be these chants and songs. And I guess, I guess the idea is I'm a big, I'm a big fan of cyclic history and there's old, very old Egyptian manuscripts that talk about the ancient priests levitating stone and some of the ways that they because no one knows how they built the pyramids and people speculate the pyramids are much much older than what we think they are like twenty thousand. you know we went through a cataclysm all those kind of i love that kind of stuff um but there's old manuscripts that say the priests of egypt used to sing to levitate the stones and cut the stones so this kind of idea um resonates for me 
And we wanted to create a story where um, music and some level of that, even though that everything is very dark, um, will resonate in such a way with all, I think with all cultures. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but this is something I find very unique. Um, it, it, you know, we, we speak English and we have our accents, but if you sing, all the accents go away. Yeah, that is true. That very is interesting, true. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I think there's that common, that common idea of music bringing people together in that sense. Um, and so that's why in, in, in many ways, the House of the Dead is going to bring the world together in a way that people never thought possible. That's kind of the overarching story, but it's a big story and there's a lot to come. <laughs> um, but that, that, so that's where that all came from. That's kind of, maybe I was spilling too many beans there, but the, the, the project is um, very ambitious and uh, we do want to make people really, and we're not going to preach to anyone. And our goal is not to tell people how they should think, but we want there to be so much meat on the bone that when people experience dead house, they'll be like, oh, okay, there's a lot here, <laughs> you know? So anyway, that's where the name came yeah. from. And that's where Sinatra came from. Well, Hey, I, I will wrap up there. Thank you again. I wish you all the best. I hope this is a massive success after, after the peaks and valleys you've been through. I think yeah. uh, this is, this is well earned. So I'm, I look forward to seeing it in a couple of years. Awesome. Thank cool. you, sir. All right, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And uh, until next time, stay safe.